0: Welcome to the Red Door Church Sermon Podcast. Red Door Church is a church seeking to transform the city of Pretoria by the power of the gospel. We are distinctly mission-minded, community-cultivating, and city-loving. Please enjoy this week's sermon, and don't forget to follow and continue the conversation by sharing with those around you. Father God, we thank you even as we actually hear the thunderstorm coming closer, the rumblings of the thunder, the flashes of lightning, soon accompanied by rain, we recognize the sovereignty with which you command all these things. And we recognize how small we are in the grand scheme of all these things. And so even though our problems and our challenges seem insurmountable in front of us right now we want to acknowledge that in the scheme or in relative to you father they are insignificant and we can come to you because not only are they insignificant to you but you are not just the sovereign God you are the good God you are the good father that seeks to love and bless his children and we pray right now that we would be blessed by your word and guided by your spirit So that not only will we be convicted, but much more, may we be encouraged to love you, love one another, and love the world. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Man, listening to the right voices are extremely important. It's so difficult to actually recognize what are the things that we're supposed to be listening today uh, that will help us, guide us, give us truth. Uh, Even my wife and I, we were speaking on the way we were driving somewhere, and we were talking about how important it is to want to be aware of the news, but not just to listen to the news all the time, because they've got their own agenda as well. But we actually need to know some of the things. What do we listen to if we want to know the truth about whether it's the Polo Polo scandal, whether it's ESCOM, whether it's trusting that your institution is giving you a credible qualification, um, What are the different sources of information that you lend your ears to that you believe will give you the truth? And how do we distinguish between those things? Because it becomes all the more apparent that institutions and people these days have an agenda. It doesn't seem like people want to purely give us objective information. Everyone is subjective in the way that they package their truth and they actually want to convince you of something. And scarily enough, this has found its way into Christian circles as well. We see that Christians, most of them, actually believe one Bible, one truth about who Jesus is, uh, what he has done. And yet, the living out of that truth and the explanation of that truth looks so different in different circles. And so which one is the real Jesus? What do we listen to? Which source of truth is the real one? What we're actually looking for as Christians... Is a Jesus Shazam app where we can record a sound bite from people and test is this the real Jesus or not? For those of our older brothers and sisters who don't know Shazam, it's an app where you can listen to a sound bite and it will tell you which artist and what song it is, which is brilliant for me because I never know anyone, anything singing. But we, we similarly want something like that to distinguish what is the truth of Jesus that we need to believe and what is not. We want to know what are those streams that we should lend our ears to. How can we at all times distinguish whether this Jesus is the one that we should be listening to and which one is not? How can you guys trust me? How do we know whether these Sunday gatherings are the right ones? What is our baseline truth? Where do we start? What are the apps that can help us? Can we Shazam the real Christ? And according to John, yes, you can, which is brilliant. It says, or John, I think, and I'm convinced, says that Jesus gave us this brilliant life hack, an app called the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is the app or the hack that enables us to hear the real voice of Jesus. The problem for most of us as Christians are we actually have no idea what Sabbath is and what Sabbath means. But today we will see not only how Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, but how He gives us the Sabbath to hear His voice. So let's jump in. If you do have your Bibles, welcome to unlock them, and you'll be able to see. And we're going to be in John five. Um, A little bit of a backstory of what's been happening in the book of John. I won't give too much detail. All to say is that Jesus' popularity has been rising. He's been making known and making claim that he's bringing this new message that people haven't heard before. But it's actually linking to the old message of the old covenant. And this new message is is that there is a Messiah, a Savior coming, and he is it. This is the one that everyone's been waiting for that is bringing salvation for all people. But this very message is actually putting him on a collision course with the religious leaders of that day. Not only are they struggling to understand his theology, but his very message is actually threatening their power. His very message is threatening the religious institution that they've built very cushy lives for themselves. And so constantly, as Jesus' popularity is rising, we see that the resistance or the persecution is rising as well. But Jesus is very, very clever about this. He's constantly moving, so they can't get a lock on him. They can't really get a hold of him. He's in one city traveling to the other city and then constantly coming back to the capital city of Jerusalem, especially where there's an important feast or something happening. And all the while this is happening, Jesus himself is born a Jew and he's still adhering to the Jewish laws. And one of those laws that we'll encounter today is the law of the Sabbath. And we'll talk about that in a moment as well. But let's get to our text. We see that Jesus and his disciples come to Jerusalem. There's another feast, another celebration happening, and they're walking around Jerusalem. The day that they're walking around Jerusalem is the Sabbath. It is the day on which they are commanded by the law not to work. And that there's a pool that they're going by. It's called the Sheep Gate Pool, or in Aramaic, it's called the Pool of Bethesda. And every now and again, the The legend goes that people believed that if the water was stirred, that it was an angel stirring the water. And that the person that first got into the water, they would be healed. And so naturally, this pool was surrounded by people struggling with all different ailments. Um, And they were just camping out, waiting for the pool uh, to stir. And then they would see who can slip and slide first in, and that person would win a prize. But obviously, um, in the Paralympics, those that still have one leg beat those that have no legs. And so, it's this race, and an unfair race at that, that people that do struggle with deformities or with illnesses, those that are still mobile can outrun the others. Even if you're blind, you can start running in a direction and you'll hit the pool at some point. But this poor man, we see that he was an invalid, meaning that he was lame. He couldn't walk. He couldn't help himself. And he's been at the poolside for 38 years. Jerusalem's not that big. I promise you, if it's been 38 years, everyone knows this cat's name. Everyone's had a conversation with him. Everyone's heard his plight. Everyone's offered help. Everyone's been involved with this guy's life. And Jesus goes and meets him. On the Sabbath. Now remember, according to Jew, Jewish custom, you were allowed to do normal work on days one to six. Day six is maybe your Saturday, maybe it's your weekend, I don't know. But days one to six, that's your normal vocational work. And even the homework, that's also the days in which you needed to mow the lawn and fix the doors and do all the normal handyman things that you needed to do at home as well. But on day seven, according to Jewish law, you had to stop from your normal work and rest. Let me read for us from Deuteronomy 5 so that we can get a clear idea of what was to be expected, what you couldn't do and what you should do. Verse 12, Deuteronomy 5 verse 12, it says, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as to the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, not you or anyone in your house. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day holy. And so it's clear that this is talking about vocational work. This is the only command that was given. But after a while, we see that the Pharisees were the religious leaders that were almost commandeered with enacting this law and teaching this law to the Jewish people. And what they started doing is, was they were expanding the law and they were adding to it. They were broadening the definition of what work was. They're like, okay, it's not just homework. It's not just your normal work. It's not just mowing the lawn. It's also you can't walk too far. And they measured out how far you're allowed to walk. They also said, well, you can't carry certain things. Um, well, you can probably carry your tunic, but what's heavier than your tunic? No, you can't carry your mat or your bed. No, that's a little bit big. And so they were the ones being very finicky about what were the things that you were allowed and weren't allowed to do. And those are the extra traditions that weren't written into the original law, but that was added onto the original law. And Jews back then, they just saw it as one big thing. This is the law of Moses, that you're not allowed to cross. The moment... Someone played the Moses card. You're not allowed to say anything against it. Moses was the big dog. He was the guy that gave them the law. And so you're not allowed to say anything bad about Moses. And then we come to today. And the healing at the pool of Bethesda. And I've got to tell you, I've been reading the story over and over and over again. And it's a very peculiar story. It's a weird story. I'm gonna we're gonna go through it, but there's a lot of moments in the story where I really honestly wonder what is going on and what John left out, what he's not writing, but it's just weird what's happening. And so we get this guy, Jesus comes to him. It says that Jesus knew that he was an invalid for thirty eight years, and Jesus asks him a very straightforward question Do you want to be healed? And we expect the answer to be very straightforward. Yes, of course, please heal me. I'd love to be healed. I've been thinking about traveling. I heard that Mozambique is great this time of year. There's so many things that I want to do. Here's my hopes and dreams. But that's not what the man says. Rather, he gives an excuse of why he hasn't been healed yet. And so never does he say yes. He says... Well, he's been trying to, but every time that he wants to get into the pool, someone else gets in front of him, and so that's why I'm not healed yet. Not even addressing the question of Jesus. Very peculiar. Jesus then simply responds, okay, I'll tell you what. Pick up your bed and go. And he does. It's miraculous. This guy is healed, but we're not told anything else. He's not exuberant of joy. He doesn't thank Jesus. In fact, um, for fear that this might put Jesus again in a popularity contest with the religious Jews and he's just there for the weekend to celebrate with his disciples. Jesus kind of disappears into the crowd and the g- this guy's like, okay, I'm healed. He picks up his bed like it's every day, although he's been lame for 38 years. He starts walking. The religious leaders saw him and was like, hey man, you're not sub- be, supposed to be walking and carrying your mat on the Sabbath. Weird. They know this guy. He's been lame for 38 years. The thing that they're noticing is that he's carrying his bed. I'm like, is there nothing else going on that you're seeing around him? <laughs> and they're accusing him. The, rather than celebrating with him, they almost bring in an accusation against him that you're not supposed to be doing this. And then we, it gets peculiar. I'm not going to say that word again, I'm, the Afrikaans is getting to me, my English bundles is up, it's like load shedding, I don't know how much we've got left. Um, it gets weirder and weirder. This guy responds, oh, but it's not my fault I'm healed, it's, it was this other guy that healed me. They're like, who? He's like, oh, he was here a minute ago, he's gone now. Later we see this guy walking, he's still, still walking around. Meets Jesus at the temple. Jesus, is like, you see, you're healed. Okay, go and sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. That's weird. What else can happen to this guy? He was lame for 38 years. What kind of torture does Jesus have in mind that can happen to him? What kind of sin was this guy up to when he was lame? And then we see him respond. Weird again. He goes and rats Jesus out. We see the first mini-betrayal of Jesus happening. Jesus heals this guy, and the first thing that he does is he runs to the religious leaders. There's the guy. There's your culprit. Don't look at me. Blame him for healing me. And we see the first collision course happening between Jesus and the religious leaders. And so they confront him. You're not supposed, hallelujah. He says, amen. (laughs) People who listen to the podcast will have no idea what just happened, but the the lights came on. we see that they confront Jesus about working on the Sabbath, like you're not supposed to be working on the Sabbath. Now remember, Jesus wasn't breaking any original Sabbath laws. Jesus was actually keeping the Sabbath. However, Jesus answers them and says, My Father is working, and He's doing wonderful ministry works, and so I'm working as well. Now if they were angry in the past, now they're absolutely livid they absolutely furious because not only was he working on the Sabbath, but he was saying that God, Yahweh, was his father. The amount of respect that they had for Yahweh was immense. When Jewish people, even to this day, when they speak about God the Father and they use the name that God gave Moses, Yahavah, they say it without any breath in their lungs, almost with the amount of reverence to God. So they never write uh, the vowels in the name, only the consonants. And in capital letters, when they write the name of God, they say, Yah, ha, va, he. They're not even allowed to say the name of God. And here Jesus comes and equates himself with God. And so in a sense, rightfully so, they are absolutely furious. This is such blasphemy that Jesus deserves death. That's such a weird interaction for me. Such a weird miracle that happened. And there's so many questions that come up with me. One, uh, through the miraculous signs and wonders that Jesus was doing, through his teachings of the Old Testament, how did the guys, how weren't they aware of who Jesus was and what he was doing? How was it not clearer to them? I, I often wondered, aren't we just giving the Pharisees a bad rap? How were they supposed to know that this is, in fact, the real Jesus? Weren't they just enforcing the laws? Weren't they just doing their job? And now we're judging them 2,000 years ago. Oh, you bad Pharisees. You should have known better. You were the ones that crucified Jesus. You wanted to kill him. And I'm wondering, was there another way? And it's interesting how John now structured this passage. He gave this weird miracle of the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, almost is an illustration of what he's about to tell them next, about the teaching of why Jesus says that he is equal with God and that God is his Father. Jesus makes it clear in the explanation. He says that he and the Father are one, that God the Father is giving life to the Son, and his Son gives life to whom he wants to. The Father isn't actually the judge up in heaven. He has given the judgment unto His Son. Remember, we've actually made this point a couple of weeks ago, that now the line in the sand isn't where where you are with regards to Judaism, where you are with regards to the law. The line in the sand has been drawn with Jesus. You are either with Jesus or you are against Jesus. And Jesus is saying, this is the judgment. You are actually either choosing just judgment or you are fleeing judgment depending how you respond to me, the Son. And the Father has willingly given all of this to Jesus. Whoever hears the voice of the Son and responds, they will have eternal life. It's a phenomenal promise. It's an audacious claim from Jesus. And so we return to this. Jesus is saying all of this. And their ears must be burning and they're saying, how can this be? We recognize everything that you're saying. It's a fulfillment of all the prophecies of old. But that must mean that you must be God and you can't be God. But how did the Pharisees miss this? How did the man that was healed, who experienced an interaction with Jesus and a healing with Jesus, how did he miss it? Why did he sell Jesus out that quickly? Wasn't there any signs that Jesus was in fact the Christ? Was Jesus being too cryptic about it? What if he just told them plainly, guys, might not have said this before, I am the Christ. Here I am. Ask me anything about your past or future, I'll tell you. And then you can believe. I'm pretty sure some of us think about that so often. It's like, if Jesus only said it plainly, I'm sure those guys would have turned around and recognized and worshiped him. But this is the second half of Jesus's teaching that he gives. Jesus is saying that the testimony that he brought them isn't on his own accord. As someone brought a testimony only about himself, and it wasn't confirmed by two or three witnesses, then that testimony doesn't count. Jesus then, in the rest of chapter 5, goes on to list those who have been testifying about him. Those who have been very clear in pointing the signs In one is this way, this is Jesus, the road to life. He says very clearly there was one man that was a bright and shining light and star and you all flocked to him in the desert. It was John the Baptist. And he did not mince his words. John clearly said, one is coming, he is going to baptize you with the fire and the spirit, that's the cat you've got to look out for. And then when Jesus came on the scene, he says, there is the guy, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John the baptizer was very popular. He had glory, but Jesus said, that glory doesn't even compare to the glory that I have. That's witness number one. Jesus says, but it's not just witness number one, it's actually witness number two. The very person whom you think I'm blaspheming against is God the Father. God the Father has been showing you guys wondrous works of ministry that's been happening through my hands. Look at the miracles, look at the fulfillment of Scripture that's happening right before you guys. This is God the Father testifying that I am His Son. I'm not doing this on my own accord. I'm not doing this by my own works. This is God the Father working in and through me. And that is witness number two. And yet there's a final witness. A final one that testifies to the fact that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. The one whom they've actually been putting their hope in the one they've been using to create a system to receive glory for themselves and actually not give glory to God the Father, Moses and the Mosaic law. Read with me from verse 44. Jesus says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he, Moses, wrote of me, Jesus. So here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that Moses and the writings of Moses, i.e. the law and the first five books of the Bible, points and testifies about the coming King Jesus, including the law of the Sabbath. And so what Jesus is actually telling them, if they truly believed Moses and the Mosaic law, if they actually held true Sabbath, then they would have recognized that Jesus is the Christ. So the accusation that Jesus is leveling against them, they're saying that Jesus is breaking the Sabbath. Jesus is throwing it back to them and actually saying, you guys aren't keeping the Sabbath. If you were keeping the Sabbath, then you would have recognized where the Sabbath is pointing to, and you would have recognized me. But in not recognizing me, you're not believing the law, and you're not holding Sabbath. So let's look at the Sabbath again. Most of us know what you're not supposed to be doing on the Sabbath. But what are you supposed to be doing? I don't know if you guys picked it up as we read Deuteronomy 5. I'm just going to read verse 15 for us again. Moses wrote, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from where? from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, The Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Okay, what shouldn't you be doing? Okay, we shouldn't be working. What should we be doing on the Sabbath? Remembering, thinking, pondering, meditating on the salvation of the Lord on the Sabbath day. For the Israelites, it was the salvation through the blood of the Lamb out of Egypt. The blood that was painted on the door made it red. For us, we remember the Lamb of God that was slain for our sins. Differently put, on the day of Sabbath, you should be worshiping God. Through regular and true worship of God, we are able to recognize and distinguish the voice of God. Hear the words of Jesus again in verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and it is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear it will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Those who hear the voice of God and respond to it will be saved. The problem of the Pharisees and what looks like even the invalid man was that they could not hear the voice of God even when it was speaking directly to them from Jesus and they could not respond to this. Why could they not hear the voice of God, even though it was actually audibly being spoken to them? The reason is that they could not hear it is because they were not properly keeping the Sabbath and regular worshiping God. Plainly put, worshiping God leads to recognizing Jesus as the Savior easier and quicker And that Jesus has been sent by God so that by listening to him we might have eternal life. They had all the signs and witnesses and testimonies, but because their hearts weren't in a posture of worship, they missed the Messiah. And they called the Messiah blasphemous. And we see then and there they started plotting to kill him. Why do we do church? Why do we come to church together, community? Why don't we just record the sermons? Why go all through this effort of church planning and setting up, through load shedding, all these things, looking for venues, praying and fasting together? Pretty sure we can spend the day better. You can have a better time. We can simply record the, the sermons. You listen to it on your commute Monday morning. You're done. Why don't we make an effort to orient our lives as Christians around, and Sunday doesn't have to be Sabbath, that's a different conversation, and we don't have enough time to really dive into Sabbath day, but why do we, culturally, we have the space to make Sunday our Sabbath, and that's why we're doing it. We could have held church on a Saturday, on a Friday, we could do it Monday night, but you guys are going to be tired. So we've decided collectively, culturally, we've got time on a Sunday, and so we almost agree upon it as a community to keep our Sabbath on Sundays, and so then we come communally together as a church. But why do we do this? And the answer is pretty important, because the answer will dictate in the way that you will relate to God and whether you can actually hear God's voice or not. The reason why you come to church. It's not so that we can learn more about who God is. It's not just for our edification. It's not just for a witness or a testimony or to be on mission so that we can bring other people who don't yet know about God so that they can come to church, know about God, and become Christians. That's not why we do Sunday corporate gatherings like we're doing it right now. It's not even for your own personal enjoyment or personal enjoyment with sharing life together and having community. All those things are true, but it's byproducts of the main reason why we come to church, why we keep Sabbath. is because we see that we are commanded to remember and to worship God. Why do we come together? To worship Him. That's it. This is what we're doing. We're worshiping God. Because we realize that in worshiping Him and remembering His salvation, we're almost... Tuning in, we're getting the app that's hearing the real voice of God again because once we go out here, we're gonna hear so many different, different voices, whether from Christian worlds or from the world out there about what can save us and what's good for us. So we're coming to a space where we find center again where the focus is not placed on us, not on my needs and what I need for this week, rather on who God is and what he's done. And it's amazing, we're designed in a way that we can't do this by ourselves. I mean, sure, there's dire circumstances, wartime mentality where that happens. But in times like these, we need one another so that we can worship together. Worship is so much more than simply listening to a podcast, hearing a good message. It's so much more than just listening to songs that you enjoy by yourself and so don't get me wrong we we, we do in many different ways worship throughout the week as we should and in, in private times when we, Uh, spend time with god we we worship even as we read the bible even as we do listen to podcasts even as we do listen to great songs we, we worship and that's great but the culmination of that worship the the highlight for the beginning of the week is the sabbath is the day that we communicate and this is a form of worship that god is so strong and big enough that we don't need to work 24 7 that we can actually take time off because he is sovereign. So even in the time of actually taking time off, what we're communicating is that he is God and I'm not, and we're already acting in worship. By really resting, Being part of that creation pattern, we're already worshiping God. And then coming communally together, what we're doing is we are remembering the salvation of God. We're singing it together. We're listening to the sermons. It should be Christ-centric. Every sermon should be about the gospel. Otherwise, we're not worshiping God and remembering His salvation. We're doing it even as we're encouraging one another and listening to stories. We're dragging our kids all the way here. We're trying to get them discipled and learn something about Jesus All of this is us trying to say, we're doing this, we are sacrificing because I don't want the focus to be on me. I need the focus to be on God. It's actually good for us that we're being inconvenienced with church. Hear this again, church is not convenient. It is actually utterly inconvenient, and it's in the inconvenience that it presses us to focus on Jesus. I was, this is not in the notes, but even as we're worshiping, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing, you see out the back there, and he's trying. We're singing Utando, and we're saying, Uya, Pila, and, and he's just, every time he's getting to Pila, and he's like, Pila, Pila, And I'm like, okay. He's catching on. There's something about him witnessing that this is what we're doing. Even if he doesn't remember anything else, there's something that he's already being discipled in, that we value a worship service together. Sabbath are the moments that we slow down and we count the cost of being countercultural because we know ourselves. We know the rat race. We know that if we stay long enough outside of a space of worship, you will no longer hear his voice and you will no longer see Jesus as Lord, even though it's been so clear to you in the past, even though he was face to face with you. If you're not in a posture of worship, it's almost like your, your heart can't translate the words to see him as Savior and your need for him. And so let's quickly take these two examples and then we're done. Let's take the Pharisees and this man who was healed, the invalid. The man who was healed was making excuses, not interested in God, but only what could be done for him. Probably throughout all the years of not making it into the pool and not being healed, you could probably say that he has become bitter. And a bitter heart is unable to turn the focus and glory from himself unto another. A bitter heart becomes like a dying star. I don't know if you guys know about black holes and dying stars, but what happens at the end of a star's life, the moment that it dies, its gravity increases to such an extent that it implodes on itself, so much so that not even light can escape. And that's what happens with bitterness. It becomes so consuming that we can't see beyond ourselves. And so part of today's message is beware bitterness. Bitterness. Beware being so consumed by your challenges that you make the mistake that you don't actually know what you need saving from. The Savior of the world was standing in front of him. Jesus said and told him, sin no more to make sure that nothing worse happens to you. He might have been healed now, but is he being healed from the second death? Will he hear the Savior's voice and wake up to everlasting life. Jesus is encouraging him. Man, this isn't it. What you've ex- yes, you've been saved from your current circumstances. Now go and find the real life. Even as we come to God, and this is a time of real desperation. I'm not, I'm not saying we should ignore those things. But we shouldn't allow that our bitterness doesn't allow us to turn the focus rightly towards God and who he is. Secondly, the Pharisees. They were so caught up in their religious system that they did not want to share or could not even share their glory with God. Beware of trying to be religious. Of just trying to do the right things. Very soon, it will become a system in which we are measuring glory with one another. And where we are not willing to share our glory even with God. And so for all of us, if we're here today, the real healing that we need, the real focus that we need is to be on Jesus, to see Him and to worship Him, to hear His voice. We do this through regular Sabbath. We don't have time to really talk about the particulars. Maybe that's a discussion for a mission or community or a DNA group to really go into the details of what a Sabbath day looks like. How do we as individuals, as couples, carve our time where we are intentional of slowing down the pace of life so that we can simply journey on what it means to be saved by Christ. So that that journey will, inevitably that worship, will return and go into glorifying and thanking God. Because you will see His Majesty. What then transforms us is not our willingness or not our discipline, but actually the beauty of Jesus. Amen. Father, we pray to you and we see that even in this passage, the, the thing that you invite us to, the thing that you are inviting the religious leaders and the sick and the lame and those with, with dramatic, difficult circumstances to, is actually a place of rest is a place of where we can journey and rest and reflect upon how good you are and the salvation that you want to give us. Oftentimes, and I've got to confess this for myself, that I get so caught up in the busyness of life and in the pleasings and of the doings, of the comings and of the goings, that there is no space to simply stop and dote upon you and worship you. And Father, my heart has become cold My spiritual pulse has slowed to a pace where it feels like I'm a corpse or I'm dead. I feel cold towards you. I feel cold towards the world. I actually feel very cold towards my brothers and sisters. And I I confess the way that I actually try to address this is by doing more, by being more. And what you're inviting us to do is to simply slow down and come to you and worship you. We pray that, Father, in in the times where we feel like we want to sit down and cry because we feel so that overwhelmed, we want to simply see you more. May we gaze upon you so that the beholding will help the becoming. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen.